I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church, and I welcome you to episode 24 in the fourth edition of the AIC Bible Study video series, New Testament Gospels. In this episode, I continue my discussion of unique content in the Gospel of St. Luke. At the end of the episode, I will point out where material presented in episode 24 is discussed in the new AIC bookstore publication, the Gospel of Luke, annotated and illustrated. In Part 5, the topics are a pair of healings on the Sabbath reported in Luke 13, 10-17 and 14, 1-4, and the pair of two kingdom lectures recorded by Luke in Luke 16, verses 14-18 and 17, verses 20-37, the story of Zacchaeus restored, a curious story of Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree from Luke 19, verses 2 to 10. And finally, Jesus' appearance before Herod Antipas in Luke 23, verses 6 to 12. The illustration is one of the oldest known images of St. Luke, an illumination in tempera and gilt on vellum. It was started in the 6th century at Rome and completed not much later in England, from the St. Augustine Gospels at King's College, Cambridge, England. The volume is said to have been a gift to the church in England from Pope Gregory the Great. I here use the preferred English pronunciation of St. Augustine. The first topic is the two healings on the Sabbath. Since the two healings illustrate the same theme, I will consider them together. And since I have not found an image of either of these two healings, I've used James Tissot's late 19th century opaque watercolor in the villages where the sick were presented to him, which is actually based on Mark 6, verses 55 to 56, again from Tissot's Life of Christ scenes at the Brooklyn Museum. The first healing involved a woman who had suffered from some crippling infirmity for 18 years, and as St. Luke wrote in verse 11, was bent over and unable to stand. Jesus healed her. In verse 17, the ruler of the synagogue, location unknown but possibly in Perea, objected to his healing on the Sabbath day based upon his interpretation of the fourth commandment saying healing should be take, take place on the other six days and no work to be done on the Sabbath. Jesus' answer was bold and blunt and addressed not just to the ruler, but his associates as well. Hypocrite! Does not each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whose Satan has bound, think of it for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? In St. Luke's narrative summary in verse 17, he recorded the pleasure of the multitude in all the glorious things done by Jesus. The second incident in Luke 14, 1-4 includes the first part of the Gospel reading for 17th Sunday after Trinity. The location was the house of a Pharisee, which Bible scholars believe was most, believe was most likely in Perea, on, east of the River Jordan. They had gone there to have a meal on the Sabbath. Present was a man with dropsy, a painful nerve condition, 
which causes the body's extremities to swell. In verse 14, verse 3b, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, whom he observes had been watching him closely since he entered the house. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In verse 3b. When they did not answer, Jesus healed the man and sent him on his way. They did not speak their objections, but Jesus answered those objections anyway. Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? As in the previous example, St. Luke provides a narrative summary in verse 6, saying, And they could not answer him regarding these things. The second subject in this final group of unique content in the Gospel of St. Luke is the Kingdom Lectures from Luke 16, verses 14 to 18, which is sandwiched between the parables of the unjust steward and the rich man in Lazarus, and in Luke 17, 20 to 37. These lectures address a theme that runs throughout the second half of the Gospel of St. Luke, that is, when is the Kingdom coming? The kingdom lectures are much like parables because, like parables, the actual words are about one thing, but the real meaning is something else. In the first lecture, there are four brief statements which suggest that the kingdom has already come, that it already exists among mankind, and that mankind should be pursuing it. These four statements, three of which are unique to St. Luke's Gospel, are rules of conduct and the source for many traditional Christian doctrines. The third of these four is presented in slightly different form in the Gospel of St. Matthew in Matthew 5:18. In the first quotation, St. Luke begins with an editorial narrative acknowledging that the Pharisees, who had come in and out of this narrative in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, and earlier in chapter 16, are now back again. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. In episode 18, in the context of the God and Mammon conversation in Luke 16, verse 9, I explored the modern corruption concerning money. Money, an inanimate object, cannot be inherently evil or good. What is condemned is the obsession with money or power or influence, either by its presence or by its absence. It was this latter offense of which both Jesus and St. Luke are referring. For this section, the illustration... For most of the text is a detail from James Tissot's watercolor of the parable of the Pharisee and the publican or tax collector from Tissot's Life of Christ at the Brooklyn Museum painted between 1886 and 1894. In the first of the four statements, verse 15, Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In Koine Greek, the language of most of the New Testament, God in verse 14 is theos, which means the one who sees. In the Anglican worship tradition, since the first book of Common Prayer in 1549 A.D., the same doctrine is repeated with each celebration of Holy Eucharist in the Collect for Purity, 
attributed to the blessed Alcuin of York in the late 8th, early 9th century. He was a theological advisor and teacher of the first modern Holy Roman Emperor in Europe, Charlemagne, from the Latin Carolus Magnus, or Charles the Great. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. The illustration, the only surviving image of Alcuin, is an illumination from a manuscript in Vienna that is thought to be contemporary to the reign of Charlemagne. The phrases justify yourselves among men and what is highly esteemed among men in verse 15b are a broad reference to pride and status, not exclusively the love of money in St. Luke's opening narrative concerning the Pharisees. In the Eastern Church tradition, St. John Chrysostom, then Bishop of Antioch, later Bishop of Constantinople, wrote in his homily on 1 Corinthians 1, saying, It profits us nothing if all men approve and the Lord be offended. The depiction of St. John, whose name means John the Golden Mouth, is a Russian Orthodox icon painted at Moscow in 1501 A.D. by Dionysius, the most celebrated icon painter of the 15th and early 16th centuries. The second of four lecture sentences is verse 16, a message concerning the coming of the kingdom. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees when he declared, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. The meaning is that the kingdom has already come and is now, and that all on earth should be seeking it. Verse 16 is the scriptural source for the Eastern title of John the Baptist, commonly referred to in the Western Church as John the Forerunner, and known in the East as the last prophet of the Old Testament. The quotation is similar to a statement reported in Matthew 5, verse 17, in which Jesus says he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The illustration is an illumination in colored inks on parchment, one of five scenes in a two-sided frieze showing scenes in the life of Christ and John the Baptist, in this case, made in the Alsace region on the border between present-day Germany and present-day France in the second quarter of the 12th century from Manuscript Additional 42497 at the British Library, London, England. The Third Kingdom lecture in this group, verse 17, should be read in the context of the promised fulfillment of the law and Jesus' claim in Matthew 5.17 that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. A tittle, along with the jot mentioned in the version in Matthew 5.18, is a very small punctuation mark written in Hebrew. The illustration, Christ Pantocrator, is a 6th century A.D. Byzantine icon in temper and guilt on a wood panel at the Monastery of St. Catherine, Sinai, Egypt. It is the oldest known icon of Christ. 
The fourth and final quotation in the first group, verse 18, is an affirmation of the sanctity of marriage. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. This instruction is similar to, but offers less detail than the account of Jesus' instruction on marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, 1-12, in which sexual immorality is cited as a justification for divorce. The Second Kingdom lecture in this group of unique content in the Gospel of St. Luke is Luke 17, verses 20-37, which immediately follows St. Luke's unique account of the healing of the ten lepers discussed in episode 20. In the opening verse, the Pharisees are back and they ask in verse 20a when the kingdom of God would come. It was to them that Jesus replied in verse 20b and 21, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. This kingdom, unlike what the Pharisees feared or the Jews imagined, that is, an earthly kingdom, this kingdom is spiritual. The illustration is again James Tissot's watercolor, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, used earlier from the collection of the Brooklyn Museum. In the remaining verses, it is not clear whether the Pharisees were still present. St. Luke only says that now Jesus is speaking directly to the twelve. In his remarks in verses 22 to 25, he gives them the first glimpse of his coming persecution and suffering and of a time when the Son of Man could not be found on earth. The illustration is again the Christ Pantocrator icon at St. Catherine of Sinai. The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here, look there. Do not go after them or follow them, for as the lightning that flashes out of one part under the heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In verses 26 to 36, Jesus offers three allusions to the Jewish people's relationship with God and the fate of those who did not follow God's commandments. The constant theme in these three allusions is normality followed by sudden change. The first allusion in verses 26 and 27 is to the time of Noah and the flood. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The second allusion is to the destruction of Sodom and the death of Lot's wife, that she was turned into a pillar of salt in Genesis 19.26, is not mentioned in St. Luke's account in verses 28 and 29. Verse 30 is the connection back to the theme of the fate of the Son of Man. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. 
Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The third allusion in verses 31 to 37 has been controversial since the first century. In them, Jesus describes a scenario of the sudden coming of judgment in which there would either be neither time nor place to escape judgment. Jesus includes a wisdom proverb in verse 33. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. What is most controversial is the reference to some taken and some left. Were those who were taken the righteous who then join in the heavenly kingdom? In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in 16 verses 19 to 31 discussed in episode 19, the righteous Lazarus was taken to Abraham's bosom, an allusion to heaven. Or were they, in the, like in the unrighteous rich man in the parable, taken to judgment and death? Proponents of the taken have gone to judgment cite Jesus' answer to the disciples' question, Where, Lord, in verse 36? He said in verse 37, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Jesus' allusion to birds of prey circling over carrion is suggested of judgment and death. Prominent early church father St. Clement of Alexandria, co-founder of the church's first school of catechetical instruction in the late 2nd and early 3rd century, and St. Ambrose of Milan in the second half of the 4th century, and tutor of St. Augustine, or Augustine if you prefer the American pronunciation, explained taken as a reference to a joining in the bosom of Christ. The scholars who produced the ESV study Bible agree with St. Ambrose and St. Clement. The scholars who produced the NKJV study Bible and the Orthodox study Bible New Testament and Psalms disagree. This is a case with no definitively correct answer. Here one has to rely upon traditional church doctrine. The day of judgment is always to be considered imminent. The timing is not only unknown, but unknowable. The faithful must always be ready at all times. Finally, no one will be exempt from judgment. The 19th century concept of rapture in which a select group of the righteous will be taken while others left has no basis in Scripture. I have found that advocates of rapture are almost always convinced that they will be among those taken and spared judgment. The next example of unique content in St. Luke's Gospel is the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, verses 2 to 9. Zacchaeus was a rich tax collector in Jericho. Among Jews of the first century, tax collectors were viewed as disloyal to their religion because they collected money for Rome. Others distrusted them owing to their bad reputation for fraudulent collection of debts. 
Zacchaeus, short of stature, having heard that Jesus was nearby, had climbed a sycamore tree in order to get a glimpse of him as he passed by. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. The illustration, Zacchaeus and Christ, is an oil on canvas depicting Zacchaeus by D Danish artist Nils Larsen Stevens from the collection at the Randers Museum of Art in Randers, Denmark. St. Luke records the onlooker's complaint in verse 7 that Jesus had gone into the house of and dined with a sinner, and Jesus' dialogue with Zacchaeus in verses 8, 9, and 10. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. In the final verse, verse 9, for his uncoerced act of generosity, Jesus blessed Zacchaeus, saying, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The theme of something lost and then found occurred earlier in the Gospel of St. Luke in his accounts in chapter 15 of the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. In the early church, St. Luke's account of the incident with Zacchaeus was contrasted favorably with the unwillingness of the rich fool to sacrifice his wealth in Luke 18, verses 18 to 27, another unique account in St. Luke's Gospel discussed earlier in episode 17. The final example of unique content in the Gospel of St. Luke is Luke 23, verses 6 to 12, his account of Jesus' encounter with Herod Antipas. In other accounts, the story passes from the accusations before Pontius Pilate directly to Pilate's asking the crowd whether to release Jesus or Barabbas. In St. Luke's version, Pilate inquires whether Jesus was a Galilean, which would made him, have made him subject to Herod Antipas. With an affirmative answer, he sent Jesus to Herod. The illustration is a late 15th century French enamel miniature Christ Before Pilate by the Montverney Master from the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, Maryland. Herod had come in and out of St. Luke's narrative several times. He is called the Tetrarch of Galilee or ruler of a quarter in Luke 3, 1 to 19. He imprisoned John the Baptist in Luke 3:19, had John beheaded in Luke 9:7, and expressed curiosity about the identity of Jesus in Luke 9:9 in St. Luke's familiar question format, "Who is this about whom I hear such things?" The illustration is an opaque watercolor over graphite on gray wove paper by James Tissot, another from the collection at the Brooklyn Museum. Earlier in this episode, when Jesus was in Perea for the two healings on the Sabbath, the Pharisees warned Jesus in Luke 13, 31, that Herod wished to kill him. And Jesus replied in verses 32 and 33, 
Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem. The NKJV Study Bible notes that Jesus was not insulting Herod Antipas as that fox, but acknowledging his cunning. Coming just before his lament over the fate of Jerusalem in verses 34 and 35, Jesus has foretold events to come in Jerusalem, including his own fate on Good Friday when the Father's plan would be completed. St. Luke's narrative in verse 8 reveals more of Herod's curiosity about Jesus referred to earlier in Luke 9.9. 9. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad and had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. In verse 9, St. Luke offers no detail of Herod's interrogation, offering only that Jesus kept silent. The outcome is described tersely, again without detail of the vehement accusations of the chief priests and scribes in verses 10 and 11. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. St. Luke ominously pointed out in the final verse, verse 12, that these two former enemies, Pilate and Herod, became friends after this incident. Other AIC resources on topics discussed in this episode are from the Christian Education video series Lives of the Saints. From the first series, St. Matthew is the focus of episode 14 and Luke of episode 15. From the second series, St. Ambrose is the focus of episode 4. St. John Chrysostom of episode 9 and 10, St. Gregory the Great of episode 14, and St. Augustine, if you prefer the English pronunciation, of episode 20. From the podcast homily series, homilies for several Sundays after Trinity are 1st, 3rd, 9th, 11th, 14th, 15th, and 17th Sundays after Trinity. From the AIC Bookstore Publication, the Gospel of Luke annotated and illustrated from chapters 12 and 14. There are two healings on the Sabbath. From chapters 16 and 17, the Kingdom Lectures. From chapter 19, the Unique Restoration of Zacchaeus. And from chapter 23, Jesus Before Herod Antipas. The illustration from page 191 is a late 10th century illumination, Zacchaeus in the Sycamore Tree. Jesus dining in the house of Zacchaeus from the Gospels of Otto III. From Layman's Lexicon, phrases and words of interest are collect for purity, commandments, Eucharist, heart, judgment, kingdom, pantocrator, parables, prophet slash prophecy, Sabbath, virtues, wisdom. In the beliefs of the Anglican Church, the commandments and their use in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer are discussed on pages 49 to 56 with the Tenth, command, tenth Commandment against covetousness on page 56. 
Finally, there is Father Ron's blog, which is accessible using links at the top and the bottom of the page. Entries usually include an illustration. The direct URL address is www.anglicaninternetchurch.net right slash blog with blog in lowercase letters. By clicking the Follow Anglican Internet Church legend in the right-hand column and afterward entering your email address, you can receive notice of each new posting from our site host, wordpress.com. Please be assured that we do not share information with any other organization. Thank you for joining me for episode 24. Next time in episode 25, I will conclude my discussion of the Gospel of St. Luke with an examination of the prayer habits of Jesus and some commentary on the significance not only of the mention of more women, but also the increased importance of their roles in St. Luke's Gospel. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Glory be to God for all things. Amen. This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church. We invite you to visit our website and use its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.